Hello, I'm Brett Terpstra, and you're listening to Systematic. This week's guest is Christina Warren, Senior Cloud Advocate at Microsoft. She's also my co-host on Overtired, but she hasn't been a guest on Systematic since about 2012. How have you been since 2012, Christina? Well, a lot has changed in both my life and the world. So I've been fairly good, I think. I mean, I'm still alive. Uh, You and I, uh, we started a podcast since then. Then we kind of ended a podcast. Then we started it up again. So that's, I think, the most important thing. We never really ended it. We always no, that's we true. left it open-ended. We always left it open-ended, but we were like on a long, we were on an extended hiatus. We, but we, we put out at least one episode a year for a little while there. We did. We did. And, um, but now we've been like actually really consistent, which is awesome. So uh, for anyone who listens to Overtired, you know that we, we don't watch our language on Overtired the way that I usually do on Systematic. But for this episode, I'm going to mark it as explicit in advance, and we're, <laughs> we're not going to worry. We're not, we're not going to swear in excess, but if it comes up, you don't have to hold back. This is officially uh, a, a crossover episode. <laughs> I love it. I will do my best, though, because I want to respect the audience of the show and whatnot. So I can actually, uh, contrary to popular belief, I can actually watch my language when necessary. So. Oh, me too. I, I, I grew up very aware of bad language so it's a it's a second nature thing for me to just like go into like christian church mode right yeah so tell me about your uh your current gig at microsoft pretend like we don't talk every week on overtired and tell me what you do Sure. All right. So I am in developer relations. I'm a cloud developer advocate um, or, or a cloud advocate. They've changed the, the name a couple of times. The roles stay the same. And what we do is we're kind of like an API, kind of a conduit sitting between the users and the community and the product teams. So we um, use the products, we talk with the community, and then we work with the product and engineering teams as well as the marketing teams to let them know, hey, these are some opportunities that might um, be good to either address with a product or like we need to do a better job telling the story about how something works, or this is a new feature we should add. Or in some cases, you know, I create content and I'm showing people how to actually use the stuff that we do. So, um, you know, uh, developer relations and, and kind of advocacy, which is a term that's replaced evangelism in the industry over the last few years, is uh, a lot of companies have it. And so, you know, you have advocates uh, at, at Amazon and Google and and Facebook and other um, smaller companies too. And, and Microsoft started their kind of current iteration of, of DevRel and of advocacy in 2017. And I joined the team pretty soon after it was launched. And so a lot of what I do is just listening and talking to people. But my specific role, whereas most of the advocates focus on a specific technology, I'm kind of the jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none person, where I can kind of slot into a lot of different things. This is especially true in more normal times when I'm able to travel and speak at things more more frequently. But uh, what I, I focus on, I do a lot of our video content and I think about a lot of our video strategy and a lot of our storytelling and about how we're, you know, kind of, you know, portraying uh, stories about developers to a broader audience. So, you know, I, a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed a student developer in China who he was a um, civil engineering major and went to the University of Pennsylvania as kind of like a, uh, I guess, exchange program and saw Satya Nadella, Microsoft CEO, speak. And he heard about, you know, the blockchain and things like that for the first time. And he actually switched his major and his focus from civil engineering to computer science. And now what he does is he has created like a pretty robust AI curriculum around, you know, um, artificial intelligence and machine learning geared towards people who don't have the traditional comp sci background. And he creates videos. He goes through and annotates um, a lot of scientific papers that are in English, but he annotates them in Mandarin because a lot of that content doesn't exist in Mandarin and teaches people how uh, to get started with stuff, how to code. He has like 340,000 followers. And so I did an interview with him a couple of weeks ago that will be out in the next few weeks, kind of telling that story. And like, that's, that's one aspect of what I do, which is kind of talking to people and showcasing cool stuff developers are doing. I do like a weekly news show where I highlight some of the biggest things happening in the developer space. 
I contribute to documentation uh, and and demos. I give talks at various conferences. I host a lot of our bigger conferences at Microsoft. So if you watch Microsoft Build or Microsoft Ignite, I'm usually somebody who's on one of the anchor desks kind of doing the live coverage. It's kind of our version of like a, a ESPN kind of sports center sort of thing, kind of doing the, the interstitial play-by-play. So in between the sessions, you know, we have our live desk where we're interviewing people, talking to them, showing off cool demos, commentating and, and you know, getting feedback from what people are saying on the internet, that sort of thing. That's amazing. And some great stories. Um, how, so I always knew you before Microsoft as a tech writer yep. with, uh, with a lot of background in Mac stuff. Yep. So how does a tech writer <laughs> with a Mac background, uh, how did you come about the, uh, the Microsoft gig? Right. So how does an Apple beat reporter get a job at Microsoft, I think is really what you're asking, right? I feel like that is what I asked. Yeah, 100%. I was just bringing it <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it was funny, right? Uh, actually, it was it was really funny because when I announced that I was going to Microsoft, I had to kind of follow it up with like, this is not a joke. Like, I'm dead serious. Sure. Because a ton of people, their response was, okay, sure. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, I think that the important thing to note is that I don't work on Windows. I work on Azure. And, uh, you know, Microsoft is a, a trillion and a half dollar company. There are a bunch of different business lines, a bunch of different things. Microsoft owns even a couple of companies, uh, you know, uh, LinkedIn and, and GitHub are both subsidiaries. There's the Xbox division, there's Office, there's Azure, there's Windows, there's Dynamics, there's Power BI. I don't know, there's so much stuff. And so, um, what was interesting to me when I was approached by Microsoft and I went through the interview process was I was thinking about, I was like, okay, and, and this was in, in, in 2017, I joined in, in May of 2017, the end of May of 2017. So, um, about three and a half years ago. So what struck me is I was like, okay, this is not the same company that it was when Steve Ballmer was the CEO. Um, What's happened under Satya Nadella, who joined, I think, in, um, in 2014, has been really remarkable. And uh, the company has gone through a pretty massive um, transformation on a lot of levels. And it, it was striking to me that I was like, that someone like me would even maybe even be on their radar. And so I figured out I, that what I was doing with writing, which I really enjoyed, but I was a little bit bored. I was like, I could still be a storyteller. I could still tell developer stories and I could actually, you know, maybe have some influence on how products are developed. If I were to go into a role like that, it would be interesting. And I, I realized like, that's not super at odds with all of like my Apple fandom stuff. Um, I use a Mac, you know, as, as my work issued machine. Um, Azure is pretty agnostic. In fact, a lot of Microsoft technologies are agnostic. That's the thing that's really changed, I think, over the last five or six years is that although Windows is still a really big part of the business and and certainly as a focus area, more importantly, like, you know, Microsoft is like a, a cross-platform and kind of a, a developer-centric, I think, business. So, and and certainly cloud-centric, right? So if you're building things and deploying things in the cloud, it doesn't matter if you're using Linux, if you're using Windows, if you're using BSD, if you're using a Mac. Um, you know, in fact, I think at this point, more Azure servers run on um, Linux than, than they do on Windows. So a lot of that kind of fiefdom, you know, stuff goes away, if that makes any sense. Yeah, right. Like, so, yeah. So I, I think that that's kind of the short answer. Um, but that was, it was funny for me as well. I mean, even when I was interviewing, I, you know, I had my, I was in kind of the waiting areas when I was going through my loop and, you know, I'm wearing my Apple watch and I have an iPhone and I've got an iPad in my back and, you know, and I'm thinking to myself and somebody even brought it up, you know, about the, the Mac stuff and, um, it, but no one had a problem with it. And that, that to me was kind of a sign when I was interviewing that it, would be a good place to go because I didn't feel like I'd have to drop at the door, you know, this identity and this stuff that I really like that I spent over a decade kind of building. But it is still objectively hilarious that CMAC, which is my nickname, you know, got a job at Microsoft because I never would have predicted that even five years earlier before I joined, um, let alone like like a decade earlier. Like I never would have expected that ever. Uh, but the world is weird, you know? So you, you might have said this already and I missed it, but did they headhunt you or did you apply? They headhunted me. 
Um, uh, I kind of got a, a reach out from a LinkedIn person, a person on LinkedIn. And then the initial role that I went out for uh, or that I was headhunted for, I was not able to interview for. Uh, the hiring manager at the time um, didn't think that that I met kind of their qualifications, which was disappointing. But that recruiter was so kind of impressed from talking to me that she felt like, you need to work here. I'm going to find you another role. So she found another open role that was with a different recruiter. And then I talked to that hiring manager, had a great conversation, interviewed for that role. I was hired into that role, had an amazing manager. And then because of, of how corporate reorgs and stuff work, what had happened was that the original job that I was kind of recruited for was never filled. There was a reorg and that manager went to a different part of the company and the role that I was hired into in that team was going to be going through some changes. And so within about three months, I actually wound up switching into essentially having the role that I was originally reached out for, but, um, <laughs> you know, wasn't allowed to interview for, which is kind of funny. So I, I, it wound up getting the job essentially that I was reached out for, but through happenstance and, and other stuff. And at that point, the role did evolve too. Like when I, when I was originally reached out um, to the cloud advocacy program, hadn't been formally announced and didn't formally exist. And so, um, and my role changed a little bit from what the initial kind of purview was, um, but it, it's still largely similar. So that is, I, I was giving a talk to um, some uh, college and, and high school students at a hackathon this weekend. And I was kind of trying to give them pep talks about, you know, people who are freaking out, like, oh, I didn't major in this or that. And what is my career going to be? And And the talk was all about how like you're, you know, your major is not your only career. And and I, I tell that story. I was like, I wasn't allowed to interview for what's essentially my job now. But within three months after joining, I wound up getting the job, which I think actually speaks really highly to management at Microsoft for kind of recognizing, like once I got in the door, okay, this is actually where you're going to be more effective. And this is the right way. This is the right place to put you, you know? Yeah, well, that's just good corporate management, I guess, right? Yeah, but I mean, it doesn't always happen that way. <laughs> so, I mean, in my mind, I'm going to be totally honest. I had said in my mind, like, I was like, okay, within a year, I want to get that job that they didn't let me interview for. Like, that was sort of my, like, private goal that I didn't express to anybody. But, like, in my mind, I was like, this is what I would really like. Huh. And uh, and then within three months, it actually wound up happening. So Interesting. I, yeah, I would have I would have just run with what I had. I guess I I wouldn't have felt that uh, strong desire. It, it feels like you you wanted it just because you they said you couldn't have it. Well, it was that, but it was also I felt like I'd be really good at it. That, I mean, there was two things. I think a you tell me I can't, I'll show you I will. That's always been one of my like <laughs> guiding life philosophies. To be totally honest, um, and I think a lot of people have that. I think a lot of people. Uh, who especially like ambitious driven people and and I would count myself that way um i I'm not like maybe as ambitious or driven as some people are, but I certainly have that part of me and I'm certainly somebody who you know you tell me I can't do something and I'm gonna show you that I will so I think that was certainly part of it but there the other part of it was I really was like i'd be I'd be great at this because they wanted like an on camera host to interview developers about tech topics and I was like you know, I'd be excellent at this. And, and with the feedback that I heard from um, the hiring manager who I didn't even get to talk to told the recruiter was that they really wanted somebody with a really deep CS background. I was like, okay. I was like, so you want a really in the weeds developer who's good on camera? And the recruiter said, yes. And I said, I wish you luck with that. Um, and there is one person who ironically was, I guess, kind of the person that I was going to be Pseudo replacing pseudo like working alongside because he wanted to do other things. Um, a guy I work with, his name is Seth Juarez, who is actually that. He's amazing on camera, and then he is practically a PhD in AI and is incredibly deep technically. And he's kind of that unicorn, right? Like he's awesome. But in most cases, not to say that there aren't many really good public speakers who are in tech uh, and are engineers, but it's rare. And being a good public speaker and being good on camera are are different as well. Um, like I, I run into this with my colleagues all the time who, when they do video, they struggle even though they're really good like giving live speeches, sure. but doing pre-recorded stuff because it, it's a different it's a different medium. I mean, you know this from podcasting. Like it's a 
different skill set than doing other stuff. And I just happen to have from, you know, the decade or so I spent in media, a lot of those skills built up. And so, you know, it, I'm I'm technical, but I'm not as technical as as some people, but I can learn, right? I'm technical enough to be able to hold a conversation and know yeah. how to carry a conversation and make it interesting. And that's more important than like, do you know everything about how all of this works? No, I need to know how do I carry this forward and make this engaging for the audience? How do I tell this story? And that's something that is not, you know, usually what you learn that's not what you learn when you're studying computer science. So I, I do, I agree. If I had to describe your personality and I could only use one word, maybe a hyphenate, I would say on camera. She has an on-camera personality. To me, like I assume that's kind of natural for you, but you refer yeah. to it as a skill you built up. Yes, it's both, right? Like, yeah, I think tell I had me it. about that. So it's a, I had a natural aptitude, without a doubt, uh, but it's actually a skill I built up. And I can go back and I can look at early videos I did or early TV appearances I had, and I can see how I've gotten better over time. And it was some one of those things, practice makes perfect. The same thing with listening to really old podcasts. I can go, wow, I've gotten so much better. And some of it is just repetition. You know, it's like the whole, you know, 10,000 hour thing. I think there is truth to that. Um, some of it is I'm... I'm a perfectionist and I'm hard on myself and I go back and I watch and I listen to a lot of the things that I do and I look for areas of improvement and I say to myself, how could I be better at this? How could I frame this better? You know? And, um, so, but, but it's a skill. And I think the bigger skill is for instance, like doing live interviews, that's something that you really just have to kind of learn from experience where you're trying to carry a conversation the person you're interviewing might not be the most engaging or might be going off the script and you've got to keep it going and you realize I've got 15 more minutes to fill and I've got to make this work because we don't have any other option or something has gone wrong technically and now I have to, you know, stutter. Live is really hard, but it's also really exciting. I love live because of those reasons. You don't have an edit button. You don't have an ability to stop. You've just got to make do with it. And I was really fortunate that at Mashable, where I was at for seven years, because we were a startup and because I joined them so early in their life cycle, I had to wear a lot of hats and I was given the opportunity to do a lot of different things, moderating panels, doing on-camera stuff, doing live interviews with people and going on on television a lot that I had to kind of pick up those skills. Because if you're not, the, the secret with TV is they won't invite you back if you're bad, right? Like they might, if there's no one else they can call, but if you don't, if if you're not able to kind of make it work and be engaging, you're not going to get invited back. And I'm somebody who likes to be on camera and I like to be public. And I I was a, a, a actor when I was a kid and, you know, I always was, was that person. And so I, and I'm also a massive people pleaser, although I've gotten significantly better with that. And so for me, I was like, I want to get invited back on CNN. Like I want to be able to, to go back. And so how do I do that? Well, I'm going to need to improve. I'm going to need to practice. I'm going to need to watch and see what I did wrong and figure out how to modulate that. Um, interestingly, I think podcasting helped tremendously with that too, even though it's recorded and it's a different sort of medium, getting comfortable with the sound of your voice and getting comfortable with speaking. And uh, like the podcast that you and I do is the most kind of like real talk sort of podcast that I do. Like, I really feel like I love our podcast because I really do feel like it's just a conversation between friends. But I've done other podcasts that are in various levels of, of structured. And, and I actually did one um, this fall that was incredibly structured and incredibly highly produced, which was yet another skill set to learn, which I, I'd never done one like that before. And I loved it because I feel like I'm going to be a much better podcaster or producer because of that experience. Sure. Um this whole, like, uh, some people are good at presenting and not at being on camera is an interesting thing to me because, like, I I can give a talk mm-hmm. and I play pretty well with an audience. But even when I do screencasts at home, as soon as I start the recorder, uh, it, I freeze. Like, yes. I, I can podcast all day. I can talk to a person. It's no problem. Totally. But if I'm trying to present something to a camera versus mm-hmm. an audience... I've seen this with my girlfriend, Elle, too. Uh, we, when uh, when the pandemic happened and we started trying to record classes to publish on the internet, 
for her students. Just teaching to a camera alone was way harder than teaching to a live class or even doing a class over Zoom. Yes. There's something about not having an audience and just having a camera or just having a microphone that's very disconcerting. I feel like you do have to have a natural, a a certain amount of natural ability that can be honed, but you have to start with a kind of a a willingness to, to act. I guess it's, it is acting. It is. It's acting and, and you nailed it, right? The difficulty, because I work with people on this a lot that they have with live stuff and they're, they're, they're um, like on camera stuff, not stuff that's not, or pre-recorded that's not in front of an audience is that. They and I think this is natural. Humans we gravitate off of the audience energy, yeah, and that makes it a lot easier. Even if you're having a conversation with someone like you and I right now, like we we can gravitate off of one another. Whereas if you're just doing recordings, you know, alone for voiceovers or for other things, that's different. And that is pure acting in most cases, but it's different, right? And and I think that's exactly it. I think that. Uh, when you don't have that feedback mechanism, it becomes really difficult. And I was, I mean, again, I, I credit the fact that I was lucky enough to have uh, a lot of like cable news experience because in most of the hits that I would do on cable news, sometimes I would be in the same room as the anchors, but I would be in a different part talking into a different camera. Sometimes I would be at the desk with them, but a lot of times I would be in like a closet staring into a camera with a monitor underneath me with a backdrop and talking into, you know, something. I can't see the person. I'm hearing them. I'm hearing feedback, you know, in my earpiece, but I don't see the anchor. So I'm just listening to the questions, staring directly into the camera and talking. And that's really kind of scary, right? Disconcerting, yeah. Completely. And, but if you can kind of, at least for me, it was like, once I figured out how to nail that, uh, that helped. It's interesting though, because I feel like a lot of kids, a lot of people who are coming up now want to be YouTubers. Like that's the number one thing career that kids want. And YouTubers, I mean, they do collabs and things like that, but a lot of it still kind of the style is one person talking to the audience, talking to the camera. And um, so it'll be interesting to me to see if like that skill, I guess, evolves if, if more people pick it up. Because I do feel like you're right. I feel like you need a natural aptitude. I do feel like there are things that the regular people who are good public speakers can do to get more comfortable. Usually the thing that you have to do is you just have to practice. And that can be really hard. And you have to watch yourself. The hardest thing I think what I run into with people is that they they hate hearing the sound of their own voice, which I think if anybody who's podcasted, you have to get used to real yeah. quick. And you do automatically get used to it pretty quick. You do, you do. And so so they hate the sound of their own voice and they also feel like as soon as something's hit record, like it has to be perfect. And in some cases, yeah, you need to do take after take after take, but in some cases you don't and you just need to go with it. And I think that sometimes people kind of get caught up in the whole, I mean, I, I run into this even with screencasting myself. I'm not going to lie. I've, I've done the sort of thing where with screencasting, I'll do 15 takes of something. And I'm like, you moron, you should have just stu- stuck with the first one because you didn't get any better. <laughs> Been there. You know, but but you want to like, you want it to be as perfect as possible. And it's like, eh, that's usually not how it works. Um, and so you have to be comfortable with just doing it and going forward. But yeah, I, I work with a lot of people who are some of the most amazing public speakers who sometimes struggle with, you know, on camera uh, when there's not an audience involved because they don't have that feedback mechanism and you don't know how to modulate. I think for me, what helps, uh, I don't like listen back to all of my podcasts, but I do watch back a lot of my videos and I'm, in, I'm, I'm mentally or sometimes actually like taking notes. How should I have done this? How should I have done that? And then as I go forward, when I write scripts, this is a big part of it too. I don't have scripts for everything I do, but I do have scripts for some stuff. And when I'm writing the script, I'm saying it out loud in my head. I'm practicing it. I'm getting a sense of how is this going to modulate? How is this going to sound? And even when I was doing TV stuff, you know, you would usually have a pre-interview, not always. And there would be sometimes they would just call me and, and bring up a random topic. But usually I knew what I was going in to talk about. And the first time you would go on a, a show, you would talk with a producer and they would want to get a soundbite after you. And I would always use that producer conversation to try out what do I want my soundbite to be? Because I know that I only have a couple of minutes and I might only, if there's a panel, have, you know, 30 seconds to get 
my little part out. So what do I want to deliver? And so I would kind of practice and test things out with the the producer that I was talking to and kind of see how that would work. And then in my own mind, I'm kind of thinking, okay, how is this going to sound? How am I going to modulate my voice? What is that projection going to be? And what is that going to look like? And so I don't know if everybody does that um, or... I'm assuming that most people who do it all the time do, but like that was just, maybe some people have better methods, but like that, that's always what kind of goes through my mind is I'm thinking, even when I'm, you know, uh, giving talks, I do the same thing. I'm like thinking out loud, sometimes talking directly into the mirror and saying, practicing what I'm going to say, how I'm going to modulate it, what my energy is going to be like. Yeah. Yeah. So this kind of plays into uh, another topic that I, I was curious about. You have or have been diagnosed in the past with OCD, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, less OCD than like anxiety, depression, uh, and ADHD. The underlying thing with all of it, though, is perfectionism, which is where the OCD kind of comes into uh, right. effect. Although being a perfectionist isn't like a diagnosis; it's not in the um, you know DSM five. But for me, that's kind of the root <laughs> of everything. Uh, and and my OCD is a lot more minor than a lot of other people's, um, and I've been able to deal with it a lot better. When I was younger, it was definitely more pronounced, though. So, well, how, how, what was going on when it was first diagnosed? How did that uh, take shape in your life? Oh, God. I mean, I was, I was 14, and I was severely depressed and anxious, and I was a perfectionist, and I, I you know, couldn't deal with— I mean, honestly, if we really want to go back, it was when I was, like, six years old, and I couldn't deal with, you know, um, not being perfect. And we, like, hit myself in the head because I was, like, you're not good enough. Like, honestly, if we really want to go back, like that's stuff that started showing itself off when I was six years old. Uh, and so the diagnosis, like I diagnosed myself with depression when I was nine, but I didn't get formally diagnosed until it was, there was a TV commercial and I hit all the symptoms and I was like, huh, okay, that's, that's, that's what this is. But it, it was when I was 14 that I was formally diagnosed and they went through the whole thing. And, um, at that time, I was exhibiting stronger OCD symptoms than I have now. Like, I have OCD tendencies, I would say now. I don't think that I would actually, in a lot of cases, be OCD. It's weird, though, because I am, but it's almost like if I can't be in my full place of being of having everything as as correct and as aligned as I would want it to be, then I kind of give up. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, I've gotten to that point where I'm like, all right, if it's, if it's not going to be perfect, then— it's not that I won't bother, but I'm just not going to like stress about it. But it is an interesting thing. Like I'm, I'm a messy person, but my messes tend to be remarkably well organized. So you know? when you say that when you can kind of let go of things now, is that, is that something you developed over time? The ability to say, okay, it's not going to be perfect, but I'm still going to, yeah. I'm going to let this happen now. Yeah. Was there a lot yeah, of therapy, therapy involved? I was going to say that was therapy. That was therapy. Okay. okay. I think that was therapy. And that was also just maybe admitting defeat at certain things. I think it was also for me, I was such a perfectionist as a kid. It took my first real failure that I experienced when I was 15, which was terrible. and It was awful. But it was getting through that, that sort of showed me, okay, you can survive. There is something that comes after this. The world does not end. because you know, that was like my greatest fear of is failure. And even in my, my professional life, um, I had a, a failure instance, um, probably around the time we last talked, um, I'd been the entertainment editor, uh, at Mashable. I'd created the section. And while it's true that I didn't have support and I wasn't kind of given the tools that I needed, I wasn't a great manager and, and it ultimately didn't work out. And they kind of, demoted me with a pay raise and which, you know, if you're going to be demoted, I guess that's the best way to do it. But at the same time, I knew what it was and it was, it was, it was shitty. It was a really hard experience losing that and having to kind of go into another thing. And I, I dealt with that, um, you know, for years, I kind of had to internalize how that was. It probably took me a full year to kind of get over that. But I look back on that experience and I'm like really grateful I had it because again, I learned a lot from it. Uh, but also it's one of those things that I had to kind of internalize being like, it's okay to, to fail. 
and it's okay for things to not be perfect, and the world will go on. So tell me about these highly organized messes. So, like, I will have a bunch of soda cans, but they will all be stacked and organized in, you know, the kind of geometric shapes. Alphabetical order. No, but sometimes by colors and sometimes other things. Mm. And and even like like things will be messy, but I'll usually know exactly where something is, which is difficult when you like have outside cleaners or whatever, because then they, you know, mess with all your stuff where all of your stuff is. I'm like, no, I know exactly where this is. And there's kind of an order to this unordered madness. Sometimes there's no order to it, but sometimes, yeah, it's one of those things where it's like things will be like in my office right now, this is the thanks to some outside help, but but I aided this too. It's like it's stacked with boxes, but the boxes are all very orderly. Uh, so it's a mess, but like everything is stacked well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I've let go of a lot of the OCD things. When I was younger, that was when I really had it. Like nothing could be out of place. Everything needed to be straight. If like a, a shoelace was hanging out of a drawer, like I, I would I would not be able to like deal, you know, um, everything was lined up and perfect. Um you know, I, I still do weird things where like with my food, especially, or like with candies and stuff, like I organize things by colors and have to like try to eat things in even quantities sometimes, which is weird, but it is what it is. Uh, but I mean, most of it is is stuff I can I can deal with and it doesn't impede in my life or anything. And it's not something that I've, I mean, some of the medication I'm on might help with it, but I don't think it really does. So it's not <laughs> one of those things that I'm like medicated for. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those things where you're not sure the medication's doing anything, but it's probably not worth it to go off it and find out. Right, yeah. right. Ever heard the corny joke about it's uh, OCD people refer to themselves as CDO because it's in alphabetical order? <laughs> I haven't, but that's funny. It's horrible. It's not funny. It is. It is. I mean, it's a dad joke, but it's funny. <laughs> yeah, it's a dad joke. I have this, I have a... a, a a, a yoga class that I attend over Zoom with a bunch of older, mostly farmer women uh, from rural Minnesota. And I try to bring a dad joke a week with me because for some reason they really appreciate jokes like, what do you call a bunch of killer whales playing instruments? An orchestra. <laughs> I know they're horrible, but they love them. And I love, I love getting a reaction to stuff like that. So that seems like as good a place as any to insert a sponsor break. So after the year we've all been through, saving money should be at the top of everyone's resolution list. So if you're still paying insane amounts of money every month for wireless, what are you doing? Switching to Mint Mobile is the easiest way to save this year. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you maximize your savings with plans starting at just $15 a month. I'm not going to tell you how much I spend on fancy schmancy coffee every month, but I made a resolution to try and cut back on that part of my budget this year. Uh, So (laughs) then I switched to Mint and saved more than enough money to keep buying fancy schmancy coffee and still have extra money every month. Switching to Mint was the easiest way to start saving money. By going online only and eliminating the traditional cost of retail, Mint Mobile passes significant savings on to you. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all of your existing contacts. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their 7-day money-back guarantee. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash systematic. That's mintmobile.com slash systematic. Thanks a lot to Mint Mobile. The next portion of our show is the top three picks. Did you have a chance to come up with three things? Um, I can. I didn't, but I will come up with them now. Like what? It, this can be anything, right? It, it can be anything. Uh, start with things you could actually link on the web. But if yeah, it gets crazy off into the weeds, like you want to uh, pick an emotion you had while while doing something abstract, feel free. I'll just make a weird note in the top three picks section of the show notes. But yeah, yeah, let's do this on the fly. Let's do it live. All right. Let's do it live. All right. So my first pick is uh, the um, Camlink 4K from Elgato. 
And that is a device that, and, and actually I think it was like my favorite thing that I bought in, in 2020. Um, it is a device that will turn like your DSLR or whatever into a high quality webcam. It's like a hundred dollars and it's basically like a, a mini HDMI port goes from your camera into the cam link and then the cam link connects through USB to your computer and then it'll show up on your Mac or your PC as a, like just a camera device. So you can interact with it in any app that uses a webcam. Nice. And and that is, uh, they were really hard to get uh, in the early stage of the pandemic. And I was able to get one from Best Buy and not have to pay the, the scalper prices. And I think they're they're getting easier. There are alternatives. If you uh, search for Epos Vox on, um, on Twitch or on YouTube, like he's reviewed a number of kind of alternative ones. Um, in essence, it, you can also get away with using just a normal, like, um, a capture card, like external cap- capture card will do a similar thing. But this is one of those things where now that we're have to be on camera and do stuff a lot, now that I'm doing a lot of remote recordings has significantly improved uh, my workflow because um, the quality that you can get from even like, you know, a used DSLR camera is going to be better than most high-end webcams. And you know, uh, so so that's that. I'm I'm a big fan of that. Like that's that's one of my my picks. Have you um, seen Have you seen Reincubate Camo? I have, and I like that a lot. Yeah, uh, for anyone who doesn't have a DSLR but owns a one of those fancy iPhones with a really good mm-hmm. camera, Camo lets you use your iPhone as a webcam. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, especially I, you know, as you said during the pandemic when. Uh, webcams got really hard to buy. No, totally. And I mean, I would actually say that for a lot of people, uh, the hard thing is that sometimes, you know, you need to use the the, the rear camera for it or whatever. And and that, you know, can be harder for some people because they like to be able to see their, their face or whatever. But if you have, especially like a secondary phone, but even your primary phone would be fine. In most cases, the sensor that's on um, even like a, a mid-range phone is going to be, A, it's going to be way better than a webcam, but for a lot of purposes, like if you do it with the right lighting and stuff, it can be very, very, you know, comparable to um, some of the higher end, you know, mid-level DSLRs or whatever that people use. Totally. So, so I mean, I think for a lot of people, like I would actually say like, don't buy, don't do what I did, which was to buy like an $800 DSLR, which was more powerful than I needed even at the time. And I knew that, <laughs> um, but I just wanted to be, you know, fancy. Don't do that and buy a cam link. Just get camo. Um, and and there are options that work with with Android as well that are really good. And camo is great because it has really low latency. There had been some earlier solutions that had higher latency, which you don't want because if there's like, you know, a difference between when you're talking and when your lips are moving, like that's a terrible experience. But, but camo is really, really good. Um, on that same note, from a software side, actually, OBS um, I, I, is one of my picks. Um, I don't know how much you've used OBS, but just it's... Just enough. Just enough to know it's awesome. Yeah. So this is the open broadcast, open broadcaster software. And it's basically, I mean, it's open source. I actually give like $20 a month to the lead developer who puts stuff for it. It's for Windows. It's for um, Mac. It's for Linux. And it basically, it's, it's designed for streamers, but... Anybody who's doing any sort of video production stuff, it's really powerful. Because in essence, it's kind of like, uh, what's the app called? Um, Wire, um, Wirecast? Yeah, Wirecast. It's, it's kind of like a, you know, a free version of Wirecast. Or in a lot of ways, it's kind of like a software version of the TriCaster, which is a really, really expensive, um, but yet inexpensive by the standards of usually these things, New Tech makes this thing called the, the TriCaster, which is basically like a, a box that basically gives you a full like live video recording studio so you can switch inputs and cameras and have different screen configurations and bring in remote people and have all kinds of other stuff. And it's really, really powerful, but it's expensive uh, for, for regular people. It's obviously very inexpensive when compared to like actual broadcast systems, but it's uh, it's you know, expensive for, for lay people, whereas OBS is open source and free and remarkably powerful. And the Mac stuff keeps getting better over time. It is better on, on Windows in a lot of ways, but the Mac um, stuff gets better over time. And I will say that a lot of the reasons that it lacks on the Mac side are not the developer's fault, but because of how Apple, you know, um, kind of eschews access to certain APIs and, and tools and stuff. But um, 
you know, right now, so many people are into streaming and and are are into having to like record from home and things like that. And OBS is just an awesome tool. And it's it's really impressive to me how much you can do with it and how powerful it is. And it's gotten so much better just over the last couple of years. Like there are a number of commercial solutions that people have created that kind of try to go head to head with it, but not be at like the Wirecast level or the TriCaster level, but, you know, maybe charge $100 or, or $150 or a monthly fee for it. And um, I think OBS is just like the, the best. Um, so yeah, like Mimo Live. Boinks. Mm-hmm. Boinks used to have yep. Boinks TV, which was kind of like yep. the early on version of this. It was. Um, it was before great. There were, you know, as many streaming services as there are, but that's kind of morphed into Mimo Live. I don't know what they charge for Mimo Live, but I do think OBS is kind of kind of obviates the need for it. It does. It does. I mean, I think that stuff like Mimo Live is great. Um, I'm trying to look and see what their pricing is. They don't have, uh, let me see, buy Mimo Live, let's see. Plans and prices. Um, yep. Yeah, so they start at $20 a month for nonprofit. It's $70 a month for commercial use. It's $200 a month for broadcast use. Yeah, that's a so lot. So that's a lot. Um, Ecamm um, makes Ecamm Live, and they used to sell that as like a, a one-time purchase, they quickly realized, oh, we're throwing money away because I actually <laughs> bought it at a one-time purchase price and they've limited some of the features that you can uh, do with it, but it is still um, uh, available. But they also charge like a monthly fee. And and that's the thing. It's like, I'm not against any of those services and I think there can be value there, especially if you're doing it like professionally. But if you're somebody who's just wanting to start a channel or you want to, you know, maybe stream some stuff with friends or you need to do something for work and it's not like, your core business, I I would use OBS every day of the week. And in some cases, OBS is even better than some of those applications. And I can't, I, I'm not going to speak or, or infer anything from Ecamm or, or um, Boinks because I know people from those places and I think they're great. Sure. But I wouldn't be surprised if, because it is open source of some of the stuff that some of the libraries and some of the stuff that the OBS team has done has made its way into other commercial products, like at all. Uh, one use case that I will mention, because I think it applies to a lot more people now than it used to, is you can use OBS to add uh, lower thirds and uh, and titles and everything to like your live Zoomcast. Yes. So if you're uh, like a teacher or uh, one of those corporate people who has to get on Zoom calls and give presentations, OBS makes it pretty freaking simple to add some really high quality uh, video tools to that and makes it easy to record yourself in a Zoom call without recording everyone else in the call. Like you can kind of pull the stream out before it gets to Zoom. Like you can use Zoom's cloud recorder, but it's crappy resolution and you get all the interruptions and everything. So OBS is perfect for that stuff. Yeah, no, and, and you you pointed out perfectly. I mean, there's so many things that people do now where like it's not, they're not like me where they're having to make, you know, they were already making videos as part of their day job and they have to do it now. But it's like, yeah, if you're a teacher and you're trying to teach something or if you're, you know, in business and you're giving a presentation, but you want to have that lower thirds, you want to have some custom kind of effects and whatnot, you want to make it more interactive and more watchable. Um, some of those other services, which are, are great, you know, they have like, a cost to them, which is not going to be something that a lot of people um, can afford or really have the need to do, whereas OBS can do it. And um, the the main person who develops on it is is a nice guy. Like I said, I give to his Patreon because although there are corporate sponsors behind it, it is largely, you know, the product of, of a couple of, you know, um, like really hardworking devs, It's which is stunning to me because it is such a good project you would you would expect that it would have a massive team behind it and that's that's not how it is so um that's that's one of my favorites and i guess uh my final one and i feel like this is a cop-out because it is associated with like the company that i work at at one not but it's also it's so good and i love it visual studio code like we had to talk about it sooner or later we did. I'm sorry, but I love it. Because you and I, like, w- our friendship, I mean, we, we worked together at the unofficial Apple weblog, but I became, like, enamored with you. And, like, you became my favorite person because of all the amazing stuff that you would do in your text editor, which then I, in turn, did in my text editor. And I love 
you know, reading about and seeing all the stuff that you're doing with like Envy Ultra and that you've done um, with Marked and and whatnot. Um, I love a good text editor. Like I love it. It's one of my favorite things. And and Visual Studio Code um, is uh, has like shocked me in in how good it is um, and in all the things that I use it for. Does it actually have anything to do with Visual Studio? No, just the brand. Although at this point, what's interesting is that they've started to adopt some of the Visual Studio Code features have found their way back into Visual Studio. <laughs> Upstream. All right. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if I were going to... So I don't use VS Code. Like every time I load it up, I'm amazed about like what I see is awesome. And the change log that pops up after I don't run it for a couple months is always pretty mind-blowing, all the stuff they've added. I just... There's something about... It's Electron-based, right? It is. There's something about this non-native, anything that's a non-native text field, I eventually run into enough little annoyances with the way that I work. It's Mm -hmm. the only thing that's kept me from buying in entirely into VS Code, because otherwise it is just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No. And there are some nickels, although they're getting better. And there's one of those things that I always say to people, like if you find them, like report them to the team, it's not a guarantee that they can fix them, but they're trying to make it better. I will say, I mean, you know, I think you can make the argument like sublime isn't native either. Um, but it be, it, it's, it, it, it's not electron, like the text field no. behaves as usual and it works with all of my system services and other uh, yeah, although 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 VS Code works with services too. There might be some things that you you can't, but like it it also like I'm looking through my services menu now um, within VS Code. That. Yeah, I mean there there are a lot of things they've done. I mean I will say like obviously yeah it's Electron and I think Electron both rightly and wrongly gets a bad reputation. I think that it is abused and certainly um, the fact that it is so easy to use and that people use it as kind of like their go to thing for making a crud app and and they like don't optimize it at all leads to a pretty terrible experience in a lot of products. I will also say, I think visual studio code is one of those examples of like this, what you can do really well with an electron, with an electron app and you can optimize it really well. Like if you're willing to put in the work, I would also say, I think the discord is, is another good example. Um, obviously it's not optimized as well as VS code is, but I think even if you compare like the three big uh, electron chat clients are going to be, or I guess four would be uh, Slack, uh, Discord and, and Teams. And I think Discord is the best performance of the three by far, um, at least in my experience. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's not perfect, but I also feel like it's one of those things that people sometimes shit on it without knowing that, hey, there are things you can do that can make this work a lot better. And I, I don't, you know, a lot of people immediately want to go to the thing, oh, it's JavaScript, it's going to be bloated or this or that. And I'm like, you're not wrong. There are maybe more native ways to to do this, but at the same time, there's a high cost to that. And and you lose out on some of the benefits um, and, and you lose out on a lot of people who are primarily JavaScript developers, right? Like, yeah. uh, I mean, I would also argue, like, I think that when I look at some of the way that, um, some of the the various the newer kind of you know Apple you know APIs and, and the way that stuff works like they're not any more performant like the some of the um God what's I'm having a, a complete brain fart what what's what's the uh the technology that Apple uses for you to basically be able to their version of Electron to be able to basically be able to bring over like iOS oh, stuff uh, into Mac uh cat, cat, Catalyst cat, Catalyst yeah. Catalyst is a pretty is pretty terrible in a lot of cases. Like, it's not a great experience. Yeah, a lot of Apple's first party apps are a proof of that. Like, they don't have proper you know menu system support. They don't have proper interface you know input stuff. Like, the buttons look wrong. It's not great. It doesn't support Apple scripting. Like, there are a lot of problems with Catalyst, and and it's not a great you know performance kind of uh, thing. Uh, so sometimes I'm like, yeah. Electron isn't great in all cases, but it can be optimized to be really well. You know, um, I, I'm not saying that it'd be good for you. You're a very specific type of user and you need very specific types of things, which is why you're basically building a text editor for yourself and for other people, right? Like you're in, you're in the position to do that. But um, for me, I was like, I was basically text mate too until like the bitter end until I just was like, I can't use this anymore. 
because it's just, there are yeah. all these features and all this other stuff I'm doing with, you know, connecting to other services and stuff that I just, it, it, it doesn't work for me. And for whatever reason, I was never able to get into Sublime. I tried several times to get into Sublime and I just never could. But, um, well, but for, VS Code VS Code got me. For those who can get into Sublime but want to try VS Code, it has uh, pre-configured settings that you can use to mimic the settings you're already used to and whatever editor you're coming from, including Sublime. Uh, all the basic keyboard shortcuts and everything can match what you already have memorized. So it makes transitioning pretty simple. Yeah, yeah, you can really customize your your key bindings to be whatever you want. If you want to set them to Vim, if you want to set them to, um, if you'd used Atom, which was another uh, Electron-based editor, Sublime. Um, and the bundling system, like their themes and like even like their bundling system is actually largely influenced from um, TextMate, which is really nice. TextMate so, kind of set the gold standard. The, they did. The TM did. theme standard, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm always, you and I have talked about this before, I think, but I'm always so sad when I think about kind of what happened with with TextMate um, because Alan was so good and it was such a good product and it was just one of those, it got bigger than him. You know, like yeah. I think that if we could if we could go back in time, if we knew what was going to happen, what I would actually recommend that he do, and, and this might kind of go against the indie ethos, but I would say he should have raised money and hired a team and built it into like a really robust product. Yeah. And I bet he rather, I mean, it had a very, very loyal, very active uh, user base that I think would have supported uh, a, a fundraiser to, to raise capital, to make it into, to take it to the next level. Yeah. I think that could yeah. have been there. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that, you know, part of the problem was he promised 2.0, way before it was ready. And, and, um, there was, I think like a bundle, like people who bought one point like he'd promised them free upgrades or something. And any, any mention or, or even whiff that maybe you would have to pay to upgrade people immediately like freaked out and were like mean. And we're like, in retrospect, I look at it and I'm like, God, like we gave way too much, um, and by we, I mean like the blogs and, and, and pundits and stuff like that. Like we gave way too much uh, like energy and attention to people who were complaining that a text editor that they paid $25 for or $50 for, they might have to pay an upgrade fee for, or that something they got as part of like a, a bundle of other, other Mac software, they might have to pay for an upgrade for. Like, you know, that got way more attention and oxygen, I think, than it deserved. And um, I also think that, you know, in this hap- I and mean, this has also happened with, with Sublime Text, where like feature, you know, scope is is real, and you know the the what he planned as being one iteration just became bigger and bigger and bigger before it just went on too long, and he ultimately open sourced it. But you know, it, it lost the momentum it had, and um, and Sublime has lost a lot of the momentum that it's had, and you know, people move on to other solutions. But yeah, I feel like if I could with the with the advent of hindsight, like. If we could go back in time 15 years to 2006, I'd be like, you have this amazing piece of software. Um, either sell it to someone and make a ton of money and and whatever, or raise money um, from VCs or, or bank or whatever and start hiring out more developers and build this into a really solid product. Because when you look at things like JetBrains, I don't know if you've used any of their products, totally. but... Um, TextMate could have been JetBrains. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You know what's interesting on the Mac beat these days? And I think it started while you were still uh, writing. um, Is you find yourself a lot of times having to defend a really good app switching to a subscription model. Yes. And I, you know, in most cases, I want 100% support apps making the money they need to make. Uh, but it puts the the writers in the position of announcing that this app has gone subscription, yes. but then also having to uh, be the kind of uh, the advocate for the app because mm-hmm. the apps don't always do a great job of explaining why no. it's to everyone's benefit that they're on subscription. And we decided to release uh, NV Ultra is going to be a subscription, and we can easily show that the amount you pay in a year is going to cover 
it'll come out to the same as what we would have charged you and then charged you again for an upgrade. So it's not an expensive subscription, but uh, it, it allows us to do all kinds of things. Yet it's going to take so much explaining because so many people yes. email no, people me every immediate- day and they're like, just as Absolutely. long as it's not a subscription, we'll be fine. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, people hate the subscription model and, and, and they hate it, but it works. And unfortunately, I mean, and a lot of this, I'm sorry, I'm going to say this. And I've said this before. Like, this is Apple's fault. Apple with the App Store basically helped enable and incentivize the push to the bottom 100%. in pricing. And, and, and what I mean by that is, is that, and they incentivized it for real when they had the ranking, you know, from the beginning, from like free and paid apps and whatnot, because before they were even separated, like they, they incentivized it and, and they've continued to incentivize it because if you do in-app purchase or subscriptions, like they get more recurring revenue and whatnot. And so, um, and for a lot of people, I mean, you know, the, the app store model really took because it did, you know, uh, it was great in that it, it led to this kind of explosion of more developers and whatnot, but it immediately devalued what people were willing to pay for software. And people also then have these expectations that software is going to, the same version is going to be free forever because you don't have upgrades in the app store. Um, So, you know, the same version is going to happen forever and people had to figure out their own ways around that. And how are you going to get new versions out? How are you going to support this? Because Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but there's not an endless supply of users. At a certain point, you're going to hit the maximum of users you're going to get for a product. And if you want to continue to sustain the development costs, then you're going to have to either release a new version, which the App Store doesn't let you do easily, or you're going to have to move to subscriptions. You have to have a way to sustain that. And and so that model, you know, really has been negative for a lot of developers. And, and it's great that, you know, companies, and it's not just Apple here, but, but companies can come out and tout, oh, we've given this much money to developers and this and this and this. And it's like, Great, but if you look at the average amount and you take games out of it and you look at like the average indie dev shop, I mean, I would think that I feel bad because I feel like 10 years ago, 12 years ago, you had a lot of indie Mac shops who probably were either doing as well as they're doing now or better with, you know, the software, kind of the boxed model, to be totally honest, yeah. right? Or or online-only distribution. And... um People had to move to subscriptions. Yes, Adobe and Microsoft both kind of helped, you know, popularize that. But when Adobe went subscription, like I was somebody who, because I remember, because uh, I was at Mashable at the time and I was writing about it and I talked with their execs and I knew that there was going to be major blowback. I knew it. But I also, uh, and I prepared kind of the staff for it and we ended up having to write some things about it. But I also thought I was like, no, this is this is really smart because Adobe was so pirated at that point. I was like, okay, well, they have really are going to make piracy a lot more difficult. So that's one thing. But also, you know, price-wise, if you looked at it, it made sense. It was like Adobe releases a new version of their suite every two years. And, and if you're paying dollars for it. Exactly. So if you're paying it monthly, and I and I get the argument from people, oh, well, I don't upgrade every two years. And I, I can understand and respect that. But, you know, they have to sustain how it works some way. And if you are a professional and you're using it in your day-to-day life, you know, you're going to want to get some of the the, the latest support and, and features. And I get it that for normal, like, people, they're like, oh, but I, I kept this, you know, for 10 years and never upgraded. Okay, yes, this potentially could be more expensive for you. But, like, this is just the only way this is kind of going to become a, a sustainable thing. And um, I understand people's anger. I also understand people's, like, I guess, feeling of just, like, fatigue over subscriptions. But for me, and you're right, like as writers, because we you definitely are in a weird spot where you kind of have to defend the business model. And in some cases, they're not defensible, right? There are some apps, I think, that go subscription and that are really predatory. And the App Store is absolutely guilty of this. And the App Store absolutely incentivizes this. And this is what makes me angry, is that they make it easy for apps to pop up and say free trial and then $8.99 a week after. Right. And I'm not joking. And this will be for a small utility app. This will be for like a PDF viewer. This will be for, yeah. you know, something that does nothing. And I'm not joking when I say like $7.99, $8.99 a week. And you look at that, and if you don't read it closely, you're thinking $7.99, $8.99. Okay, fine. Now multiply that by 52. Yeah. And and you're you're talking about people who are just fleecing people's money. Um, but for you know, good quality applications that want to be sustainable, that's how you do it. And what makes me angry is that you have two points of view from the consumers. You have people who are who are decrying 
that apps are not native. And they're saying, oh, give me a native app. Give me this and that. And then they're at the same time complaining when it's subscription. It's like, yeah. you you can't have both. You, you don't <laughs> want it to be a web app. You don't want it to be a web app. You want it to be native. You want it to be always updated. You want it to be able to keep up with the changes that Apple makes frequently to break things because Apple is, unlike Microsoft, is very willing to make backward compatibility you know, changes like that will break backward compatibility like in a second. They don't care. So yeah. if you want it to continue working, you have to continue developing. It's not like you can just stop. Um, and whereas with a web app, you would have a lot more leeway with that, right? So you either have that, um, but you're also saying you, you want all of these things, but you also don't want it to be subscription. And it's like, that doesn't work, unfortunately. And especially if you're trying to sell in the app store and the app store has made it very clear I mean, Apple could have made it easy to offer app upgrades. Paid upgrades and free trials. If they had offered that, uh, half of the apps that are currently subscription would never have needed to be. 100%. 100%. And people, we we were begging for that, you know, 12, 13 years ago within the first few months of the App Store when we were at TUAW. And it's it's been a, a battling cry for well over a decade. And, you know, it didn't go that way. So this is what you get. Um, is, and it's unfortunate, but it is what now. it is. This is what we have now. This is how it works. And I don't know. I'm, I'm always on the opinion, like, I want things to be sustainable. Now, that said, there are some little utilities and things that I like and use. But if I don't use them enough to justify, like, an annual or, or a, a subscription, I'm not going to do it. Um, that does, though, also potentially give people an opportunity if you made, like, a monthly subscription or something else where, okay, I'm just going to pay for this the few times a year I need it. That's frustrating. And, and, and maybe you find another utility, but also, I mean, there are always going to be trade-offs that doesn't mean that there are some apps that I used to pay for that I don't pay for anymore. Yeah, it does. But it also means like, I don't know, I want to support you. I want to support one password. Um, I want to support text expander. expander. Yeah. They did it poorly. Yeah. That their, their initial rollout was their initial rollout was very bad. They fixed it. Yeah. They totally did. and, 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 you know, and I, I was one of the people who, like, I think kind of wrote about that. And I even, like, had some communications with them where, you know, they, 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 they made good on it. But their first rollout was poor. It was, not, it was not well done at all. But, you know, I look at things. Like, like I think 1Password, I, I, I still to this day don't understand people who are mad about paying you know, a subscription for 1Password. I can understand some people who are, like, I don't want to trust my passwords on your cloud, I guess. Although most of those people are at the very same time saying, I'm just going to put this in Dropbox and and sync it myself that way. And I'm like, okay, honestly, you're an idiot because you should just have the encrypted database on one passwords cloud if you're going to put it in Dropbox, right? Because like it's, there's no difference. Um, But if you are one of those people who's like super paranoid and doesn't want any sort of syncing at all, or you have your own always on server, run key pass X, whatever, Bitwarden, which you know, I'm not a fan of, whatever. <laughs> but 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 people who are like mad at one password, I'm like, it's $60 a year for five people. And it is the keeps all of your logins, identity and security and stuff. Like that is the easiest $60 I spend. I have no problem with that whatsoever. I'd pay double, I'd pay triple, you know? Yeah, totally. Like because that's one of my must-have apps. So that's another pick, one password. Um, but, uh, you know, but there, not every app is going to be that way, obviously. And, um, but I also think that's an opportunity for the developers, right? Because you can kind of say, all right, we can make the features that really speak to our audience and we can really, you know, refine what we're going to work on for them because every app doesn't have to be for every person. Right. All right. Well, that fun fun conversation that went yeah. a different direction than I had expected. But uh, let's, <laughs> let's tell people where they can find you. Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter at film underscore girl on the Twitter. So you can find me at Instagram at Instagram.com slash film underscore girl as well. I used to do these really awesome hotel tour Instagram stories that people miss a lot, but I can't travel. So those are on hiatus, but maybe I'll be doing some stories as I clean my office or something. I don't know. Um, and you can obviously listen to me on Overtired with Brett. We come out every Wednesday and, or, yeah, we come out Wednesdays, right? Yeah. Yeah, that seems right. Yeah. Uh, Wednesdays or Thursdays. Anyway, weekly Overtired no, no, with Brett. this episode comes out on Thursdays. 
Okay, okay, yeah. So, so Overtires on Wednesday, Systematics on Thursdays. I also do Rocket uh, with uh, Brianna Wu and Simone de Rochefort. Um, that comes out on Thursdays, uh, relay.fm slash rocket. And if you want to see the videos I do at work, you can go to youtube.com slash Microsoft Developer. <sighs> YouTube.com. I'm, I'm taking notes slowly. My keyboard is, uh, I'm using a wireless keyboard that is very quiet to type on while I'm podcasting, but I'm not good at it. It's very clumsy for me. Um, YouTube.com slash what? Microsoft, Microsoft Developer. Clever. All right. Well, Thanks, Christina. I'll, I'll be Thank talking you, to you. When this comes out, it will appear in reverse order because we actually, as we're recording, this is the day before we record Overtired, but it will be published mm-hmm. the day after. So, woo, space-time continuum stuff. Um, anyway, I'll talk to you tomorrow or yesterday. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk to you yesterday, Brett. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Systematic. Check out more episodes at SystematicPod.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Find me as T.T. Scoff on all social platforms and follow Systematic at SystemCast, S-Y-S-T-M-C-A-S-T on Twitter. Thanks for listening.